0: We're just going to jump right in Absolutely. So, hello and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today we're delighted to be joined by Amanda Dennert. Amanda, it's so good to see you. (laughs) Hello, hello. Um, Hi. Good to see
1: you both.
0: Well, here's my attempt at a bio for Amanda Dennert. (laughs) Amanda Dennert holds a degree in musical theater from Illinois Wesleyan. You started your professional life in the theater as a professional musician and have since worked as a freelance director, musical director, an associate artistic director, an artistic director, and I'm sure in many other capacities, which we'll talk about. (laughs) And you teach at Northwestern University, where you have had a long time association with the Looking Glass Theater Company, Mm -hmm. and currently- you're directing Love's Labor's Lost at the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Company with an yep. original pop score that you co-created with André yes. Ploos. I'm going to say Ploos. Is that correct?
2: That is correct. Yeah.
0: Well, welcome. And uh, first, let me say thank you so much for agreeing to be our guest on the state of Shakespeare. I know that you don't often do publicity, so we feel especially <laughs> lucky to get yeah. to talk to you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> From your bio, we know that you have and a a very wide range of talents, and I do mean talents. If someone were to ask you what you get paid to do, how would you answer?
2: Uh, I get paid to um, imagine things. I think that's what I'd say. Sometimes I say we get paid to play make-believe, which is probably one of the best jobs you could ever have on earth, honestly, although it can be hard, but it's just telling stories. That's really what it is,
1: and telling stories, whether it's through music or through a play, or
2: whether it's through talking or through singing or through movement, or you know, in a kind of a once removed way, through teaching, acting, teaching, directing, it's it's just all about storytelling to me.
0: So here you are, and you're you're one of the more Elusive and sought after freelance directors in the country. <laughs> I don't know
2: if I'd say that, but
0: thank but, you. But your um, your trajectory into it, you sort of yeah. humbled backwards into. Well, you describe it. What happened?
2: Yeah, yeah. I thought I was going to be a pianist for. A, you know, I can say a long time, but really a long time means from when I was you know about three till when I was in my mid-teens. And I studied uh, really hard, and it was something I was really passionate about. And then at a certain point, I realized that being alone in rooms wasn't always uh, the most fun thing. And so I started branching out into accompanying for musicals in in my area when I was um, still in high school, and that was something that at the time I could do pretty easily, uh, just because I, I did. It wasn't as hard as the music I had been playing, yeah. and um, so that was really rewarding and uh, I started exploring learning some other instruments and uh, when I went into college I thought that I was heading toward being a conductor and um, for probably for musicals and opera at the time I thought the same person could do those jobs Um, (laughs) and then as I went through college I got an opportunity to do some directing and realized that That was a place where I could kind of do what I really loved, which was understanding how music is part of a story, and then there's also talking. And then I saw an uh, actor named Richard Jenkins spoke at a commencement at my college. And um, he was an alum, and at the time, he was the artistic director of the Trinity Repertory Company in Providence, Rhode Island, and I thought, I am going to follow this guy around because he talked about art, and it was the first time I really understood that there was kind of a purpose to what we do. Um, I don't know how else to say it, but that, that, that could both get the reward for yourself of making it, and also the experience of being able to share it. And so I went out to Trinity, and that was (laughs) right when Richard left and Oscar Eustace became the artistic director. I was engaged in their uh, training program there and uh, found myself in the position of being the only person in my class who really... Wanted to direct, not act, and so that gave me a lot of opportunities with my cohort, and I got to do a lot with the main stage during that cu- couple of years of training because of my music skills, um, because they're they're useful, which I love that I still love that I love being useful, and uh, from there uh, it turned into uh, opportunities to direct, and Oscar really took me under his wing and. I was there for about 10 years altogether. Wow. And so th- that, and I didn't initially think I was going to even direct musicals, truly. I had just started to have enough of, I was still music directing in the summers, like at Summer Stocks, and was kind of ready to move on from them. And then um, Oscar got excited about doing musicals and that kind of reinvigorated my interest in finding new ways to do them. And to me, musicals and classics are not all that different because they're just big stories with verse. And they're about the big things in life, you know, love and death and comedy and tragedy. And uh, I found myself really enjoying plays like that, musicals like that, plays with music like that. And that's just kind of how it went along.
1: So first of all, an amazing story and beautiful <laughs> and very timely. But what's missing is that lovely word that we have in our title, which is Shakespeare. Uh, right. So how did you bridge from all the work on the musicals to, mm-hmm. to Shakespeare?
2: Well, Shakespeare, I really liked because Shakespeare's dead. And uh, (laughs) which means, you know, uh, there's just, to me, it's the ultimate in directorial freedom because what you get to do is work with it. It's a it's a plot. This is going to sound awful because I really do. I really do love so much of Shakespeare's writing. But also, um, I'm aware that it's very easy to put Shakespeare on a bit of a pedestal. And I don't think Shakespeare is the um, most important classic writer at all. You know, I think that that Shakespeare is the most well-known classic writer in Western theater, probably. If Shakespeare is not the most important classical writer, I'm not saying he is.
1: I'm just saying if he's not, who is? <sighs>
2: I think Calderon is really fantastic and under read or recognized in the American classic theater. Almost. So that that's probably who I'd go to is Calderon. And I'm still trying to like expand my knowledge of plays that I don't know that come from other than this hemisphere.
1: They found a bunch, I think, down in uh Spain.
2: Yep. Yep, yeah, And it's, I mean, it's beautiful work and it's um, really, it's kind of like more magical realism than, I mean, Shakespeare dabbles in it and we call those the romances, but it's kind of all over Calderon and I'm hoping eventually I get a chance to do one,
0: but we'll see. Yes.
2: Yes. But what Shakespeare did was just take some really excellent plots and configure them really well for a really effective architecture. To have some incredible language, like really incredible language, to invent words, to talk about the theater itself. I find that you know it's in a lot of the plays. It's especially in *Love's Slaver's Lost*. This kind of awareness that a play is just a play. I mean, it's it's sort of all over the, the plays, you know, talking about the ages of man and talking about when the players come in Hamlet. So I appreciated that Shakespeare guy who was just writing really good popular entertainment. And I believe in making theater that is populist. I want theater to be able to appeal to the widest possible range of people. I don't think entertainment is a bad word. I think that to entertain someone takes quite a lot of effort. And it's not just about, I love comedy, love comedy. And it's not just about comedy. It's about the story being compelling and interesting and the characters being believable and all of it. And Shakespeare included songs. I don't even I don't I don't know why except that they're entertaining. So you've got these fantastic plots with kind of excuses to put music in them, <laughs> and um, you know, and really an opportunity to just cut them down for what a modern audience understands in terms of um, the dramaturgy we're used to, the, the rate of storytelling that we're used to, and the fact that it's not a five hour event. You know, which is, it's just our theater format is different. So Shakespeare's Dead, you can cut the plays down, you can rearrange them, you can replace the language, you can figure out how to make it really incredibly visceral and real and happening and comprehensible, and there aren't any rules. That is why.
1: (laughs) I love it. I love it. (laughs) Well, well uh, now I have so many questions for you. After that answer, it's brilliant. I love it that Shakespeare's dead. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Well, the, one of the things you said is you love be uh, making populist, you know, uh, populist plays. And one might make the argument that Shakespeare is the opposite of populist, given his language and all this stuff. So, how do you go about making Shakespeare for the masses?
2: Well, you know, you start with stories actually are, and the story. I'm talking. So what I'm about to say doesn't apply to the histories as much, but with all the rest of them, they're just interesting, you know, so, you, you know, take, I'll say the name of the play we're not supposed to say, take the, take Macbeth, what would you do if you were a really hard working person, not especially ambitious, felt good about your life, maybe had some problems at home, but you you were just out doing your manual labor and then along comes these um, like creatures out of nowhere. And they tell you, you're going to be King. What would you actually do? You know, that to me is very interesting. I don't know what I would do. (laughs) And, um, but I understand why Macbeth does what he does. I do. I wish he didn't. And so you sit and you watch that play the whole time. Just wanting to kind of reach into it and shake the characters. And that, to me, is as good as any HBO series you ever get to see. So the plots are connectable. And then the language is not incomprehensible. But I think that there has been a lot of misunderstanding in the American theater about the speaking of Shakespeare and a lot of um, rules put in place around it, a lot of do's and don'ts, a lot of trying to be elite. That absolutely pervades a lot of the thinking around Shakespeare and the arts in our country. I just don't subscribe to that at all. I don't think it is elite. I don't think it needs to be elite. I think it's in English, and it should sound like it. And in fact, it does. If you Simply let yourself make sense of it and manipulate it for, I don't know, not not even clarity. Just change the word when you absolutely need to change the word because it's just going to make it easier, better, clearer for the actor, therefore clearer for the audience. And when an actor understands what they're saying and what they're doing and who they are in a situation and when they're good, you know, when they're good at saying somebody else's words as if they are their own, which is incredibly difficult to do. If they're good at it, an audience has no trouble whatsoever enjoying it. That's what I believe.
1: I think I think we're all in agreement on that one. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but yeah, I know what you mean. I, I I really don't like what the perception is of Shakespeare. I don't like the pervasive thinking around it. I think that there's just a lot, a lot of misguided work around the way it should be done. And I like to think that I'm part of some group of people that is trying to do something different.
1: You're heretical.
2: <laughs> well, yes, yeah, because why not? Yes, Because I agree. what we do is make believe. You know, what we do isn't history. It isn't literature. Shakespeare's literature is a whole other category. I do, you know, and you really can read them that way. But when you're dealing with just the text of a play, it's going to be spoken. So, you know, it's not precious.
0: It sounds like your philosophy and artistic vision surrounding Shakespeare is very much in line with what Hudson Valley Shakespeare does. (laughs) And we love Hudson Valley. We've we've spoken to a lot of artists from there. Mm -hmm. So... You've worked at Hudson Valley before. Yep. Yeah. You did a Pride and Prejudice that was adapted by Kate Hamill, right? Yeah, mm
2: -hmm, I did. That was in, oh my gosh, I think 2017. And that was- So it would have been
0: in the old space, right?
2: Yeah, it was in the old space. And, you know, same kind of, it's what I think Kate is so brilliant at, same kind of irreverence and personalization of this very dense novel that is, I think, hard for some people to get into. I wasn't a person who really vociferously read Jane Austen. You know, I would not consider myself the target audience for Pride and Prejudice, (laughs) except Kate's adaptation is brilliant because it's just about people. It's a plot and people and storytelling. And it gives itself permission to break rules, both textually, theatrically, all the ways. So yeah, that was my first show at Hudson Valley. And I think that it always goes well when what you believe about theater lines up with what the theater believes about itself.
0: That's a match made in heaven. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you a nerdy question, if I may. Totally. So the music that you've created for this Love, Slavers, Lost is is a pop rock score, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So what does working on the music for this play teach you about the play and vice versa? <laughs> I know that's a big question.
2: No, no. It's actually pretty straightforward. I've always written music for theater. I really enjoy it. And also I tend to feel more like I'm a hack than a real composer because, well, because when you're, I I mean, I started writing for theater when I was in undergrad and I understood it by writing in the style of, you know, so you you ask a director, what, what do you think this sounds like? What do you want this to sound like? And they give you reference points. And if you're a little, if you enjoy the technical aspects of score analysis, the way I do, then it's really fun to see, I'm going to write something that sounds like it could have been written by X. So that's how I really came into writing. And it was a couple of years ago when I was working on a different Shakespeare play, Time of Athens, at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and I realized that something that always happens to me with when I do Shakespeare is I think there's a story there that isn't totally in the actual language of the play <laughs> all the time, and it has to do with just what's going on in the inner life of the characters or what I think like the space between scenes feels like, emotionally or musically really and I started thinking about adding songs as a way of creating a context for the characters or for the world supporting whatever the event was and so I thought I'll do this and I realized it's not that different from the way I'm totally not about to compare myself to Wrecked but it's it's the same it's It's because I stumbled into it. I was then I was like, "Oh, that's what Brecht was doing. I mean, there's like a thousand books written about that, but it was just using music to put the audience into a specific kind of context or mindset, using using songs to tell the audience something about the character that wasn't going to be in the text the character was speaking. It was their inner life. It was their inner conflict. It is sometimes just to put everybody in a very contemporary moment to say this part of this play, you know, is exactly like this thing that's happening in the government right now. Stuff You can do that just by stopping everything and having a song. (laughs) And um, so that was really what I was into when um, I got asked to start working on Love's Labour's Lost, which I did um, first out at Oregon Shakespeare. And I wanted to create more of the context and internal storytelling for the group of um, female identifying characters in the play, because like most Shakespeare plays, they're underwritten, you know, um, it's not, it's not about them, but it, it is to me. So That was the initial reason. And then it just felt very fun and organic to express some of the energy of these really young characters um, in all the good and the bad ways and to navigate some of the really um, abrupt emotional shifts that happen in the story that I think are what make it worth doing. I think it also connects back to um, when Jonathan Moscone was artistic director out at California Shakespeare Theater. He asked me to do a production of Two Gentlemen of Verona, but he told me I should do anything I wanted with it, which was incredibly generous. That's You don't hear that a lot. And I said, even completely rewrite it? And he said, yeah. So I created the Verona Project, which was a complete... It's its own play. It doesn't have a lot of the Shakespeare language in it, but it's the characters, the way I think they're, they work, the way I understood their story was just about the same as Shakespeare's for like a little bit <laughs> and then became different in my head. So I just wrote a different thing and it had songs. <laughs> so like all of that kind of weaves together into what I'm working on now.
0: So In this in this production of Love's Labor's Lost, when I think about music, there are so many ways that music can function in a play. There there, it can be interstitial or Mm -hmm. there can be musical interludes or there can be Mm -hmm. underscoring. Does does all of it? All of it.
2: Yep. All of it. Because once you are working with a live band and they're there, you know, you can do I mean you can play music whenever you want. It's just a question of and I, I I enjoy working with actor musicians always have, have done for years, because I'm a director musician. So I honestly think it's just that. Mm. Like, I think it's fun to get use all of yourself in your work. Mm. And um, I find it incredibly joyful to get to be having play practice and band practice. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, they're there. And so you can play music whenever you want. And it doesn't preclude the use of pre-recorded music either. Again, because what you no rules. And to me, you use what's necessary. So if what's necessary is a big old recorded event, then you do a big old recorded event. Like it's okay. Use whatever you want.
1: In a situation like that where you have a band, the band becomes part of the story.
2: Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah they yeah, they can't not. And the thing is, there's, and I'm going to like sound like a directing teacher, there's two ways to do that, right? Either the band is part of the plot of the play, that you you figure into it that there is this band, and you attach them to a location in the play, and then you exploit the fact that you've created a band. Or it's just actors telling a story, and sometimes they play music. I think of it that way. Because it's a lot of work sometimes to make it make sense when actually the only thing the theater does better than any other form of fiction is it is anything it wants to be at any given moment. It's live. It's happening in the span of time it happens in. The audience knows that. And suspending disbelief I don't think works the way people think it does. You know where you are the whole time. And you're not cognitively meant to be engaging in separating what is real and what is not real. What you're seeing is what's happening. The mistake, I think it waters theater down to try and help the audience pretend things away, when in fact, they'll focus just fine. So I like to think of it as an opportunity to just let people be surprised and, uh, engaged and delighted and in a comedy and one that's kind of overflowing with impulse and young energy the way this one is mm-hmm. stuff is coming from all over the place so that's an inherent part of the story so it can be in the bone the storytelling these characters don't have rules or they mm. make their own set of rules that are really strange yes. and then they try to <laughs> adhere to them and mayhem ensues and right. so that's probably why i keep talking especially with this one about there aren't any rules because it's part of the world of this play is a certain degree of chaos that i find very i yeah i am kind of just a heretic at heart <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't know if this question has any validity. This may be a totally subjective viewpoint. There may be some mm. real real bias here, but I think that if somebody were writing a history of uh, American theater in the first quarter of the 21st century, they would probably find some connective tissue between something that happened at Brown University, the Fiasco Theater Company, Bedlam, Hudson Valley, Shakes, the mm-hmm. U Looking Glass Theater. There's something there that is a connective thread can you identify that? What What is it? Is there, if you had to pinpoint it, could you?
2: Well, you know, I sort of understand it from my own entry point, which is the combination of hearing, oh, I'll get a little emotional. Actually, it's a great question. Hearing Richard speak that day for me. And Richard talked in that speech about Adrian Hall, who was the founding artistic director of Trinity Rep, and Eugene Lee, who was the primary designer at Trinity Rep. Adrian and Eugene were influenced by people before them. Adrian talked a lot about Jersey Grotowski, and there's there's a lot of theater that you could trace back. My entry point is, as a person who went to that theater, and then found that it made sense. And we're just talking about, we're talking about something that it's at once so simple and small and ridiculous, and also very important. Telling stories, fiction creates empathy. And our world is very much in need of empathy. So understanding how to tell stories with what I would call, this will sound very clinical, but the most effective way you can. And by effective, I mean impactful on the viewer for the audience. Everyone does that differently. And I certainly can't (laughs) claim that there is one way that is objectively better than another way. I believe in the way I do it, because it's what makes sense to me. I connect to it. And so, and I found that audiences do too. So that lets me rely on it. I was a teacher in the Brown Trinity Rep MFA program when Ben Steinfeld and Noah and Jesse Austrian came through the founders of Fiasco and I it it feels weird saying and they were my students cuz not really but we did plays together we had you know classes together I, we had very long <laughs> passionate artistic discussions together And then as you know, and they were in that same place too. And then that turns into the bravery to really start a company, which is such a hard thing to do, which is Fiasco. And now Fiasco also has a school. And so they are creating a community around them that believes in fundamentally the same kind of surprising, exposed, personal storytelling that really values the actor as the center of the theatrical event, that we all just absorbed by osmosis through the American regional theater movement (laughs) of the 60s, circa, you know, around Providence, Rhode Island. Mm. And Looking Glass is different and yet similar in their beliefs about the real raw nature of theater. And the wonderful fundamental difference is simply that they create their own work. Sometimes it's adaptation, but it's always original. And that's just such an exciting thing to get to be a part of because it's new. And that's what We also need a lot more of in the theater right now. I do think it's bad for me to say that as a director of classics, but new work, you know, is really important and new, exciting theatrical work. So that was kind of rambly, but (laughs) there's a real feeling of we-ness about it that it's like nothing else. It's the best feeling in the world. And you have to under, you just can trust the fact that that's going to show up in the work. And the connectivity of the work, the way it communicates to the audience, it's going to be in there. And when something is made with that much love, it's going to change people for the better.
0: Yeah. So in your role as a creator of Love's Labor's Lost, for example, and many other yep. pieces where where you play not just the composer, but also mm-hmm. the director and to a great extent that dramaturg and playwright Mm -hmm. um, are these things that could that could be compartmentalized in any way like could you ever outsource any of those pieces and still feel like Hmm. it would be possible
2: do you mean um in my own process or other people's like
0: I think in your in your own process like do you think like okay I'm wearing my composer hat here and this is uh, how I'm going to work with this other part of me who is the director or is it
2: uh, I see no yeah it's for me it's all one thing and it is, though, like not like a puzzle, maybe like a three-dimensional puzzle, because it's, it's a simple thing, but not always an easy thing to actually tell a good story, but it's all to the service of the story. And in a more meta level, the story of what is happening from when the audience sits down and it starts to when the audience stands up and walks away that's the span of time within that span of time you might have three other spans of time <laughs> that, okay. but that's the fundamental one that's the big ball you know so the dramaturgy the writing the directing the you know the staging the composing the coaching the acting it's it's all part of making that big ball the best just Striving to make it the best thing in the world in that place and time. All the things are part of that. And the opportunity to use all the parts of me is what I love. So like that I can do this here at Hudson, that I'm being trusted to uh, make a thing using the things I do. There aren't a lot of director, music director, composer people. (laughs) So often I find people don't really know what to do with me except, you know, they kind of get a music director with the package. But (laughs) that it's what keeps me the most engaged mentally and the happiest. And no, it is hard for me actually to like separate, like when I'm doing when i'm doing shakespeare and there's a dramaturg assigned to me they get really frustrated because <laughs> i don't know how to not do that job it's i can't just not do this thing we call dramaturgy but to me is just part of directing it's
0: been great talking to you and connecting with <laughs> you again absolutely uh, it makes me very happy thank you for spending the time to talk with us and and uh, to you know Share your uh, share, <laughs> no, share yourself well, yeah. with our with our with our, <laughs> our dozens and dozens of listeners and, so and really <laughs> really good engineers.
2: <at> <laughs>
1: and to tell a good story.
2: Oh, thank you, thank you both.
1: Thanks, Amanda. It's really
2: nice to meet you, Jim, and thanks yeah, nice for you. what you're doing.
0: I'm Garrett Vandermeer, and I'm Jim Elliot, and thank you for listening to the State of Shakespeare.
1: Do you have more time? Can we stay and talk for you with you for a little? <laughs> yes, I have no more time.
0: Right. Sure, we'll Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.